You're listening to Critical Mass Radio Show, Final Fridays live from Brandman University. This show is live in front of an audience of CEOs and executives from the Southern California business community with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show, our final Fridays live from Brandman University. Thank you for being here in the audience, and thank you for listening online. I am your host, Rick Franzi. This radio show is being broadcast in front of a live audience from Irvine campus of Brandman University. We host this show on the final Friday of each month. Our show airs live on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 4 p.m. That's our studio show, as well as Thursdays at our special time of 3 p.m., all of our shows can be heard live on octalkradio.net, Orange County's only community radio station. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, we encourage you to listen live during our broadcast times. I'd like to thank and recognize our sponsors, Brandman University, Center Club, Decision Toolbox, NBN Design, Smart Business Magazine, S&H Rubber, Succession Strategies, Tone Software, and UPS Protection. A special thank you goes to the Brandon Business Society for providing lunch today. Yay! We have a great show for you today, and if you're here or you're listening to us live, feel free to comment, and Asia Celestino, who is our field producer and responsible for our live programs, will be taking your response and bringing them to my attention. Our topic today is, is there an ROI, return on investment, on ethics and business? And, oh, do we have a panel put together for you today. They're all doctors. matter of fact, uh, Paul and I are the only two at the front of the room without a Ph.D. or an E.D., so that doesn't matter, but we're going to be asking the questions, and the people with the credentials will be answering them as it should be, I guess. I'm going to start, uh, for those of you that can see this, and for those of you that are watching on the YouTube video, to my furthest right is Dr. Mick Euclea. He is author, consultant, and CEO of Leadership Track. Mick, thank you for coming today. My pleasure. Next, sitting next to him is Dr. Lauren O'Connor, Director of the Office of Disability Service Accessible, Accessible Education at Brandon University. Dr. O'Connor, thank you for coming. Pleasure to be here. And in the middle of the room, or closer to me, is Dr. Fashan Goshani. He is Dean of College of Engineering at California State University. Dr. Goshani, thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. And last but not least, sitting right next to me is Dr. Sam Bressler, Associate Vice Chancellor, Human Resources, Learning and Development at Brandman University. Let's give it up for our panel today. Let's just begin very briefly by starting again with Mick. Mick, could you talk to our audience about your background and why you're excited to be on a panel talking about ethics in business? Well, I work with a lot of organizations, and I think it's pretty obvious that ethics is something that's extremely important. We've seen so many go through what I call the make the hall of shame over the past few years, and so it's a real issue. I've written a book on the topic. It's not a heavy-duty book on ethics. It's a breezy little read, but it hits various topics, and uh, it's without trust and integrity. It's very difficult to do business with anybody. Exactly. Uh, thank you for being here today. You're a returning panelist. You are, I think, our first or maybe our second returning panelist. It's great to have you back on this panel again. Thank you, Leah. All right. Dr. O'Connor, uh, could you uh, talk a little bit about your background and why you're excited to be on the panel today? Certainly. Um, Lauren O'Connor, and my background is as a psychologist working in schools, 
private practice, and presently I've designed and implemented our Office of Disability Services, Accessible Education. 70% of our new students are veterans, so that's my passion, and I'm here kind of to spread the word about veterans and how we can get them into the workplace and be real successful. Great, and thank you for giving of your time this afternoon as well. Dr. Golshani, could you give us a little bit about your background and why you're here? Sure. Uh, uh, educational background as well as my career have been in engineering and computing. And I currently uh, lead the College of Engineering, which serves uh, about 4,500 students in almost all of the engineering disciplines. And as you can imagine, uh, ethics and uh, ensuring that what they take out as part of their curriculum uh, all those things that we consider important in any business or in any line of endeavor, those things are extremely important, and we try to incorporate that in uh, the curriculum of all of our programs. Thank you. And as I said, last but not least, Dr. Sam Bressler, uh, would you share a little bit about your background and why you're here today? Thank you, Rick. I'd be glad to do so. Ethics has been a personal passion of mine for many, many years. I have... Uh, more than 30 years in different technology services organizations in varying human resource leadership roles, the last 11 of which is Vice President of Human Resources for a large technology company based in La Jolla. And in that role, I had the privilege of contributing to the leadership of the company's ethics committee. So I have 11 years in the trenches, and then when I joined Bremen University three years ago as a member of the faculty, the very first course I was privileged to teach was a course on ethics, corporate social responsibility, and sustainability. So I've had an opportunity to look at this issue from a couple of different perspectives, and I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. And let's again give it up for our panel. And you, if you're listening online, you're welcome to applaud as well. We'll feel the good karma coming through the airways, right, Paul? Paul is the owner of octalkradio.net, the radio station we choose to stream our live radio shows to. Uh, I'm going to come off the script a little bit, and I want to start, start with you, Dr. Pressler, because I heard you say two things that I wanted to uh, kind of follow up on just very briefly. The first one is, if I understood you correctly, for the firm that you work for, you were on their ethics committee, so they had an ethics committee. They had a very extensive ethics program. Okay. The committee was the coordinating resource, and the committee was not a single function. The committee represented every major business and support function in the organization, and it was quite a large organization, too. But that was just one part of the company's commitment to ethics. There were many other moving parts. Right. Okay. Uh, do you want to describe them? Of course. Okay. Please do. <laughs> well... The leadership of the ethics initiative in that organization uh, was embodied in the ethics committee, but ultimately someone has to be in charge. So we did have a rotating chair. Uh, the individual was directly accountable for ethics initiatives to the CEO. Uh, there was no one to get in the way of that. And in fact, there was a dual reporting relationship to both the CEO and uh, an ethics committee of the board. Um, which we all thought was an excellent idea, provided an alternative form of accountability. We had ethics training. We had an ethics policy. We had, more, most importantly, we had the senior executive leadership will to actually practice ethics and take action when needed against those who violated the company's ethics principles and policies. 
Thank you for being the first one to address a question on the panel for Critical Mass. Final Friday's Live from Brandman University. Uh, would you say, since the audience that listens to this radio program generally are CEOs and executives of small and middle market companies across North America, is it a best practice for larger organizations and corporations to have an ethics committee? Um, Rick, it's not only a best practice, I really think it's essentially a mandatory practice. Wow. It's, a very, it's a very competitive environment out there. The market for labor is evolving very rapidly right now. And companies that have formal approaches to ethics, in my opinion, actually have a positive competitive discriminator in terms of effectiveness in recruiting and retaining the best employees. All right, so there you go. We're barely 15 minutes into the live broadcast, and we already have one proponent for ethics in business as a hard ROI. Thank you, Dr. Bresler, for your comments. Let's go down to the other end of the table, Dr. Euclea. I'd like you to define, since you're a published author on the subject with your books, The Ethics Challenge, what is business ethics? That's a great question. There's a lot of different definitions, but uh, Plato said, how can you evaluate without values? So if you're going to evaluate something in any way, shape, or form, you need to have a value, something value that you're basing it on. So it's really a values-based set of principles or codes that uh, really define for us what is good behavior, bad behavior, what's right and what's wrong in various situations that we get involved in. And it uh, becomes a plumb line for us so we know whether we're in compliance. And it's not just about compliance. It's also about character. But that, that's a little bit broader definition. But that's what it is, a value-based set of codes and principles that, that help us judge what we do, our actions and behavior, if it's right, wrong, good, or bad in a particular situation. A follow-up question for you, Dr. Clea. Listening to your answer, I need to ask you, does that mean that ethics can be somewhat different between different companies? Can different companies define ethics in a different manner? Sure. And is that okay? As long as they have their set of codes and they live by them, usually there's, there's what we call moral intelligence and moral ignorance. But if you look around the world, uh, moral intelligence can be learned just like languages can be learned. We have the capacity to learn morally as well. And most societies, unless they're some we've never heard of, have very similar codes of ethics. For instance, the golden rule, we think of Christianity, but there's at least 14 religions in, its, in the book uh, that have some form of the golden rule. So there's some commonality. And even though, for, for instance, if we go to China, they have, you know, they respect their elders. Over here, we have a little more independence in our thinking, but all of us think it's wrong to steal, kill, lie, cheat. Okay, one more follow-up question for you, Dr. Euclid, and don't worry, other gentlemen, I'll be getting to you just shortly. Uh, in your research, are much of the ethics that companies adhere to founded on religious beliefs then, or can they be independent of that? You, you can trace them back to religious beliefs. They might not be found on religious beliefs, but you'll find that they're very similar in a lot of ways to religious beliefs, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, that's in a lot of religions, but that's basically what ethics is all about. Don't 
screw somebody else unless you want to get screwed yourself. Okay. Uh, that kind of a thing. That's just putting it down in the street language for okay. you. Okay. Are we comfortable with that? We're on internet radio. Yeah, we can speak freely here. Yeah. Right. That's that's part of the power of being on internet radio. All right. I'm going to come now to Dr. Goshani. I'd like to ask you about this concept of too big to fail. And we've heard a lot about that in the past handful of years, at least here in the United States. It's been a great topic of conversation, debate at all levels of policymakers and uh, financial institutions and others. In your experience and your observation, can the concept of too big to fail lead some companies into either unethical or possibly overly risky behavior by the CEO and top executives? Uh, excellent point. And... Uh well, uh, I draw analogy on uh, whether power corrupts or not, and uh, we have seen many examples of it, as we have seen examples of feeling of invulnerability and uh, moving into risky behavior, basically. And it's not a universal correlation, but there are many, many examples, some of them very recent. Do you remember the name uh, Dennis Kozlowski, for example? Yes. Uh, a giant uh, company, Tyco International, he was the CEO and then uh, sat in jail for uh, several years uh, for uh, fraud and uh, misleading uh, business practices. Another example, Bernard Eber, or Eber, however the name is pronounced, do you remember WorldCom? Yes. Again, giant that purchased MCI, for example, and uh, various other telecommunication companies. In uh, year 2000, this gentleman uh, was selected as one of the top CEOs, one of the most powerful CEOs in the nation. In 2005, he was sentenced to a 25-year prison term. And in 2009, the Time magazine named him as one of the 10 most corrupt CEOs. And we do not hear of, MC, uh, of uh, WorldCom anymore. Now, another name, uh, Sanford Weil. We don't hear of Citigroup anymore either. The reason these names come to mind is that uh, I distinctly remember the cover of a business magazine that had uh, the name of their four picks for the CEOs of the year in year, around about year 2000. The four were the Qualcomm, the, I'm sorry, the uh, WorldCom uh, boss, uh, Tyco International, Citigroup, and the fourth one was Martha Stewart. And uh, wow. none of the four uh, survived the test of ethics and with them went down these giant businesses that were the darling of Wall Street at the time. So there are plenty of examples where uh, uh, once corporations grow bigger and once uh, the leaders have uh, more power uh, in the society, in the market and in place of work, there is a bigger responsibility to adhere to the code of ethics and as uh, Dr. Yuclair mentioned, live by them day and by day. I'd like to follow up on that if I could, Dr. Golshani. It sounds like from the examples that you use, two thoughts come to mind. The first one for me is that unethical behavior may be an accelerator to a company's short-term success, but they also may ultimately lead to its demise. Absolutely, and, and uh, you clearly see uh, traces of uh, 
what you said in the uh, way that the company, these companies went to the top and uh, eventually their errors caught up with them and caused their downfalls. Thank you for putting it so nicely. Right. And then my second thought was, uh, it seems to me that this concept of tone at the top, which is used in a lot of areas, which I think to me, the behavior of the leadership imparts the behavior of the employees. They sort of set the boundaries for acceptable behavior. Is it your experience from the companies that you mentioned and others that you've studied that not only the leadership, the CEO, exhibits unethical behavior, but other people are complicit within the company to go along with them because some of the things that were pulled off by those companies as you mentioned no one person could do it alone that's very correct and uh, let me add to the mix Enron another company mm. not only uh, uh, the company failed uh, and, and many many of, of the individuals uh, at different ranks lost their status or actually were uh, sentenced to uh, uh, prison terms uh, but Companies that did business with them also went by the wayside. The accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, Arthur Anderson right. no longer exists. So, yes, it is not just the individuals at top, but they really set the tone. They influence how the firm behaves and even how their partners, their business associates, and so on behave. So, it is a really deep and... Uh, uh, impactful message that the leader of too big to fail, if you want, can set for uh, themselves and for everyone who does business with them. All right. Well, it seems like it's time now for our first commercial break here on Critical Mass. Final Fridays Live from Brandman University. If you're listening to us live online, don't go anywhere. We'll be back in three minutes or less. We have a lot of great questions. I encourage you, if you are listening to us live, if you have a question, tweet to Asia Celestino, and she'll be able to bring your thoughts and ideas to the panel as well. So stay tuned. More to come after these words from our commercial sponsors. Commercial Bank of California, or CDC, is a well-funded, full-service bank located in the heart of Orange County. When it comes to safety and stability, CDC has one of the highest levels of capital of any commercial bank ranked in the top 6% in the nation. Commercial Bank of California was founded in 2003 by a group of Orange County's finest entrepreneurs. To this day, our bank is governed by our founders, including General William Lyon of William Lyon Homes, Alex Morello of the Morello Group, and Frank Willey of Fidelity National Financial, to name a few. In short, we are bank founded, built, and run by entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs. Not every business in Orange County should be our customer. However, if your business is looking for a bank that can assist in finance, production, analytics, and risk management, there's no better bank to choose. To understand the true power of how Commercial Bank of California can help you achieve your goals, give us a call at 714-431-7000 or visit us on the web at www.combancal.com. Member FDIC. Can we 
talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. There's something positive about the word up. When things are looking good, they're looking up. When someone's down, you cheer them up. So how do you move up? Well, when it comes to getting your bachelor's or master's degree, there's one university that stacks up, Brandman University. Brandman is ranked by U.S. News and World Report as one of the nation's top ten universities for online bachelor's programs. Brandman's online graduate programs in business and education also receive top honors. So look us up at brandman.edu. Brandman University. Move up. Richard Franzi is a highly sought-after keynote speaker on topics of interest to CEOs of middle firms across North America. Richard's talks include Killing Cats Leads to Rats, a fascinating look at how unintended consequences of CEOs' decisions impact their firm's performance. Your Gray Matter Matters, which explores how a CEO's mindset can differentiate a middle market firm and define its culture. Richard delivers talks to a variety of audiences, ranging from executive team retreats to keynotes in front of hundreds of CEOs. To learn more about his talks, visit criticalmassforbusiness.com and select the contact page or call 949-887-4104. Welcome back to the live presentation of Critical Mass Radio Show, Final Fridays Live from Brandman University, in front of a live audience with a live panel. And me, your moderator, Rick Franzi. I'd like to thank and acknowledge those who listen to our program as a podcast. In the last 30 days, you've downloaded over 13,000 episodes of the Critical Mass Radio Show series. For that, we're truly appreciative of your continued and growing support. All of our shows can be found from our website, criticalmass4business.com. All right, welcome back. I'd like to turn our attention now to Dr. Bressler. I have a question for you that I'd like you to talk about a little bit, if you would. Some people have argued that there are long-term benefits for good ethics. You talked in your first answer about the need for committees and, and reporting structures. I'm wondering, is a good reputation in the public eye, higher productivity in employees, and satisfaction in stakeholders in a company, are these factors that have a positive impact through ethics in a company? But in addition to those factors, I would suggest that there are some others that are equally important. One of them is that Companies whose reputational capital is enhanced by effective ethics initiatives tend to find themselves, and there is research to support this, tend to find themselves with higher multiples. In other words, Wall Street treats them a little bit more kindly, and that's for a number of reasons. Uh, Companies that do have strong ethics initiatives tend to be more successful in avoiding 
some of the legal and regulatory challenges that can be extremely costly, not to mention damaging, to a company's reputation. If you put the cornerstone initiatives in place, you can ultimately uh, find yourself in a position where you don't spend the dollars in litigation and defense that other companies in your industry, direct competitors, might have to spend. That improves profitability and ultimately allows a sustained competitive advantage for your organization. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question. Um, Terry Sawyer, who's a member of our studio audience here today at Brandman University, uh, came to me during the break and talked about how the corollary or the opposite of that might be true, Dr. Bressler, which is companies that go through an ethics, a very public ethics problem, it, the employees who work for that organization and institution during those times can be tainted by that. And I'm wondering in your research and the work that you've done, have you seen how good people who may have worked for a, a non-ethical company that gets discovered, how long that tail is that follows them as their resume goes and their hireability? Does it have the other side for employees who maybe did nothing unethical but are sort of painted with that brush? And I'd like to thank Terry Sawyer for that question. It's an excellent question, Rick, and Terry, thank you for that. The um, tail of the comet, when there's been an issue, can be a very long one. Most of us still remember the positive side of how Johnson & Johnson stood up to the Tylenol challenge. The CEO took immediate and uh, effective action to recall hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bottles of tainted product. And even though that was many, many years ago, just looking around in the audience and with my fellow panel members, everyone nodded their head immediately. There was instantaneous recognition. Some of the companies mentioned by my colleague to my right yield similar immediate response. Some of the companies where ethics somehow was forgotten in the mix uh, as far as individuals working for those companies are concerned, um, ultimately it comes down to having an honest, accurate story to tell a prospective subsequent employer. People who were involved, and we can go all the way back to the Watergate years, some of the, uh, some of the most egregious um, individuals involved in that turned around their lives. Uh, one or two went into the ministry and they redeemed themselves. Redemption is possible in all contexts, including this one. Thank you. Great answer. Appreciate the follow-up and con the content. This panel discussion is all about the content, ladies and gentlemen. And so if you have a question, if you're here in the studio, or if you're online and you're listening, if you'd like to, uh, you can tweet us at at CEOPeerGroups.com or hashtag Final Fridays, and we'll be able to follow the stream and, and bring you into the conversation. I'd like to go back down to Dr. Euclea. A, a thought I had while Dr. Pressler was talking is, is ethics in business a recent phenomenon? Or, I mean, if you look back in the history of this country and other countries, were, was ethics something that was not as important as it is, it seems to be today? Yes and no. Uh, yes, because business has always had some ethical component, or you couldn't do business. Trust and integrity are very important. They're related, but they're not the same. Integrity is what I have. Trust is your perception of me and what I have. So that's always been a part of it. But it wasn't really until the 70s that it really...
began to be something that was talked about. There was an ethics compliance and all these kinds of things that began to come about because it was needed. And, uh, and then that took some transitions as well. It went from a, more of a transactional approach to what we do to a transformational approach of what we are. So it's one thing to have outward compliance. It's another thing to have inner character, and you need both. Uh, for instance, the, one, the companies that bit the dust in the Hall of Shame had unbelievably good codes of ethics, beautiful codes of ethics. They, they were great. Trouble is, they weren't internalized. They had outward compliance, but there was no culture of ethics. They didn't have the internal, you know, uh, the character aspects of it. And you need both of those to have this work. And it needs to start from the top. I think you mentioned it earlier. It needs to start from the top, but also you, you transfer the ethic component. The guardians are not just the people at the top, but you also send it down to the front lines through things like mission, vision, core values, those kinds of things. This is the kind of company we are. This is what we do, and you practice that on a daily basis, and you talk about it. As Max Dupre said, you'd be like a third-grade teacher. You repeat it over and over and over again. That's the, that's the job of a CEO. Excellent. Well, you know, as you were answering that question, a couple of ideas fired in my head, and I hope you don't mind if I... This is I, what you do. If I, if I follow up with you, okay? <laughs> and I hope the audience doesn't mind that we kind of take this, this route. Um, raising children, I think I was taught that ethics of children are caught, not taught. In other words, they watch what you do more than what you say. It sounds like from your example of companies that were high flyers that crashed who had beautiful ethics on the wall but didn't practice it, that that may be the case with companies too. I would also say that ethics are taught and caught. Okay. You need to teach them. For instance, you mentioned children. Uh, we teach, we give our children standards. Those are outward compliance rules, we'll call them that, on our little CEOs in the house, okay, our companies. Uh, those are outward compliance. We give them standards, and we hope that as they grow and mature, and through our example, they will internalize those standards, and they will become convictions. So that the standards now and their convictions, their internal convictions, are together. And then nobody's perfect. And these companies that were talked about, uh, people make mistakes, but the key is to be able to test your excuses. And that's what some of these individuals didn't do. And for instance, Kozlowski didn't know what he was about. His philosophy was this. I hire them like me. Smart, poor, and want to be rich. That was his approach to life. And I will say to you that if that's your philosophy, you're going to do anything to get rich. Right. So you better have a bigger reason uh, why you're in that business. You're going to make money. You want to make money, but there's got to be a reason of why, why you're there. And this is what I will do and what we will not do. And we're going to state it very clearly. We're going to practice it. If we step over this line, we're going to admit it, test our excuses, and, and correct those things. Martha Stewart went to prison, not for the first mistake, but for the second mistake. Mm. She didn't test her excuse. Clinton got impeached, not for the first mistake, but for the second mistake. Nixon got resigned from the presidency, not for the first mistake, but for the second mistake. So once we make a mistake and we see it, one guy said, you don't drown by falling in the water, you drown by staying there. When you make a mistake, <laughs> you see it, get out, dry yourself off, admit it, take it public, this is what we did, and people have an amazing ability to forgive.
Okay. And then the other thought was, there's a book by Stephen M. R. Covey, um, Speed of Trust, and he talks about a trust tax. And so as I heard you talk, I was thinking about what I've heard him talk about as well, which is that our subject, is there an ROI on ethics in business? To me, that is an ROI, which is a more efficiently run organization where less time is spent, even internally, validating that your peers aren't trying to run a game on you or being distrustful. If I trust you, I don't have to vet you. We can get right to work and get it done. I trust you to do it. I don't have to be suspicious. Uh, we can talk to each other in ways that other people might think we're arguing. Uh, but I trust you. I have your best interest in mind. You have mine is in mind as well. And we can move much quicker as a result of that trust. Right. And that saves money. It, it, many people in the audience may view Warren Buffett with a very high trust quotient, right? That he, And his philosophy is it takes a lifetime to build your reputation and one event to lose your entire lifetime's worth of work. Interesting. He said, too, that... that People during boom times, at the end of the boom time, is when they start to make violations because they want to keep it going. Uh, yeah. And it's not really discovered until the bust period. And he said this famous statement, he said, uh, when the tide goes out, you discover who's been swimming naked. <laughs> Let's give a little round of applause for Dr. Ukayla pushing the boundaries there by quoting other folks. I love it. All right. Let's go to Dr. O'Connor. Uh, there is a saying that whatever is legal is okay. That could be an attitude within a company. In other words, Words. If we get by with it, it must be all right. And so let's continue that behavior. Can you discuss that and the effects it has on employees? Certainly. Um, I think simply because it's legal doesn't always mean it's ethical, okay? Um, you'll see with Americans with Disability Act, you'll see people using the bare minimum and they'll interview people for positions, they'll interview people for jobs and things like that, and somehow they're not hired, okay? There still is a certain amount of uh, prejudice there and, and uh, uh, not resentment, but hesitancy to hire individuals. But what I'd like to turn to, I know we've been talking about you know, companies, if you really look at it, unethical situations. Look at the Veterans Administration that we're dealing with right now. These are physicians. These are top politicians. There are thousands of people involved. And since I work so often with students who do have disabilities who are veterans, uh, many times they're hesitant to disclose or they don't believe that you're going to get them what they want as far as assistive technology because they've been waiting a year, two years to get services, okay? And if you, if you look at that structure, and it can be similar to CEOs in you know, the private industry. The reality is it's easy to do legal things, but is it truly ethical? No. So I think we're seeing some major changes in our nation, and you've seen some people who've collapsed, and they're gone too. Martha Stewart has bounced back. I don't think in with the VA that that's going to happen with a lot of those individuals. And you're really looking at it's opening up. More people are speaking, but it's shocking that more employees or physicians did not bring that up. Because if you talk to anybody behind the scenes, they'll tell you that veterans are waiting a year, two years for psych services, for surgeries, and there's a lot of damage. So it can be legal, but not always ethical. Right. So, so your your point of view is that it's it's a very low bar. Then, if you just do what's legal, that may not allow you to have an ethically run company. A absolutely. Everybody will will talk that they'd like to hire people with challenges who need accessibility. But when it comes down, if you look at the percentages of people with just hidden disabilities, many times they'll disclose once they're hired. I have ADHD. I have a learning disability. But if it's this individual who may be quadriplegic, paraplegic, or a veteran who's been scarred, um, 
they don't always make it through the second and third interview. Right. And, and to build on an earlier conversation about good people who are painted with the bad brush, maybe the good people that work for a company that had an ethical, I think about today's returning vets. There's been so much in the news about the mental challenges that vets are having that I'm wondering if employers are wanting to hire vets, but they're worried, what am I really getting? This person looks fine, but am I buying off more than I'm expecting because of this returning vet? Yeah. There, uh, and, and, and that's an excellent question statement. And what we're finding are many of our veterans who are coming back uh, over the last 12 years we've had hundreds of thousands who've served my students probably 70% of the new ones coming in are veterans like I said but most have been deployed two, three, four, five times I interviewed a veteran just recently and 10 years was deployed eight times wow. now you don't come out of that without PTSD or possibly a traumatic brain injury our veterans are excellent people to hire in that they have organizational skills, they know how to take orders, they have great leadership. Um, are they going to have to deal with things that they have gone through? Absolutely. They're, um, as a general public, we have no idea. I was having lunch recently with a friend of mine who just retired as a colonel, and we were talking about part of the things that he went through and the general public cannot relate to having to kill other people watching your friends die but so getting back to ethics and you know employer and in companies uh, definitely I think many of your CEOs need to be trained in disability services they need to be trained in how to work with veterans because I think there could be some hesitancy there like right. are they going to as my one friend in the military he said the military men and the veterans refer to it as we get a little edgy sometimes, okay? Like they don't want to sit next to a large window in a classroom or they want to sit near the exit, okay? We understand due to snipers and things like that in the past. So I think training with CEOs and training by individuals like this making people much more aware than discomfort. Thank you. I'd like to turn to Dr. Golshani now. Uh, um, we've opened the door on this idea of government intervention, and so I wanted you to comment on from your philosophy, from your research and your experience. I mean, is the government regulation an answer to unethical behavior in business? And I ask that in the context of one of the most regulated industries that we have, which is the financial industry, which seemed to be, at least from the last recession, one of the most unethical organizations and industries, yet there's tons of regulation on those individuals. So I'm not biased saying regulation isn't the right answer. I'm just laying the ground rules down saying I, uh, our very recent example suggests that maybe something inside of that is wrong. Can you, could you comment on that, please? Absolutely. And uh, uh, it, it, again, it's a, a very, very broad subject, and I try to touch on several issues that are relevant here. Before that, let me uh, just applaud uh, Dr. O'Connor on, on his work with persons with disability and, and veterans, particularly injured veterans, uh, which impacts the economy by, uh, uh, by so much. Every person who is... Uh, uh, contributing to the economy is one person less on the welfare. So uh, what your office does is obviously so impactful in so many different ways. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, back to the question of uh, government's uh, role in uh, in this. Uh, again, I go back to what we just heard that uh, uh, ethical and, and legal code may or may not uh, coincide in all aspects. There is uh, obviously anything for which we have legislation we can prosecute. Ethics uh, are those gray areas the legislatures have not uh, caught up yet with uh, 
and, and uh, prosecution is extremely uh, difficult, if not impossible. Uh, it happens, and there have been success, but generally uh, there is quite a bit that needs to happen in the area of policy making by more of technologists, environmentalists, uh, social scientists, uh, and also uh, uh, business to connect with the policymakers and help them understand and, and uh, come up to where, if you want, code of misconduct is to have laws that capture that. Let me give you an example that uh, drives home uh, uh, the point. Uh, imaging and commerce. It's very, very uh, common in almost every uh, in industry. So let's say in fashion. Um, what we see in catalogs, we accept that they are touched up. I mean, if there are uh, dresses in five different colors, uh, probably there weren't five pictures taken. It's just uh, uh, electronic or digital uh, changes that made those. That's fine. No one complains about that. Well, let's say you're selling a house. Well, the picture is taken. What do we do? Well, we're not uh, selling the shack next door. It's a beautiful house that we have. It's the one, it's the one we're selling. So we crop the picture. Mm, that's fine. Well, how about uh, a little trash that is on the side of the house? We're not selling the trash either, so let's Photoshop that one out. Uh, how about removing something else or touching up paints and so on? Well, okay. Uh, so removal of uh, uh, certain objects and then we get to moving objects how about dragging the little by lake a little bit closer giving a dramatic picture this is what happens well at some point it becomes a fraud and the person is caught well where is it that we just crossed over the ethical boundaries well, take that to a broader uh, scale, uh, and let's look at some things that happened in uh, not so long ago. Uh, the trial of last century, and the two giant magazines of the time, Business Week and Times. Do you remember? They selected a picture of O.J. Simpson, the same week, so both magazines were understand exactly at the same time, and I don't remember which one, I'm glad for that, one of them had made the picture a few shades darker, uh, probably implicating guilt or whatever. Did that cause a legal stir? Uh, did any of the magazine or the magazine that had made the change? So, yeah, the reason. Well, we always uh, try to match the uh, pictures to uh, pictures with the news item you're covering. Well, let's take that to yet another publication, the great National Geographic magazine. Uh, they did a similar thing. They wanted a picture of the three pyramids in Giza. Well, you cannot have a good picture of the three of them in the same uh, scene. So they dragged one of them just a bit closer, became a beautiful picture, gave a perspective that, uh, well, there was no way you could create in reality. 
and they took a lot of flack for that because people uh, realized that it, uh, it, it couldn't exist. So, at what point do we consider something like this that is clearly unethical based on uh, the subjective criteria that we set upon each and every uh, individual business or society as uh, Dr. Euclid mentioned at what point do we consider these acts to be to have crossed the, uh, the line uh, hopefully hopefully we will have uh, legislatures who are caught up with technology and business and uh, as I said all areas that uh, define uh, code of ethics and the laws will match with at least the egregious cases that uh, are not quite uh, illegal but definitely stink. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, it's time for our next commercial break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. Our Coast to Coast, our fi final Friday's live edition here live from Brandman University. So don't go anywhere if you're listening online. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these words from our commercial sponsors. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. If you are an Orange County CEO or a business owner, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have had these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. CEO Peer Groups is a registered trademark of Critical Mass for Business. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. And welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show, Final Fridays Live from Brandman University, in front of a live audience with a lively panel. Our audience demographic is 98% business owners and executives who listen to learn from the experiences of our panelists and guests. If your firm is interested in reaching these top decision makers, then advertising on a radio show may be the answer. Last month, our sponsors gained valuable exposure through their support of the program. To learn more, contact Rose Tamora at 
515-416-6651. All right, I'd like to come back with you, Dr. Gressler, and ask, in your experience and your research, do financial reward systems, incentives, tend to have a negative impact on ethical behavior within a company? Thank you, Rick. The most effective financial, excuse me, the most effective incentive systems reflect an organization's strategic intent and their values. It is possible to set up incentive systems that reward nothing more than growth in revenue and profitability, nothing beyond that. If individuals are expected to continue to grow the the bottom line and only grow the bottom line, you have the potential for ethical mischief. But fortunately, there are many companies that look beyond that. Please understand, I'm not saying that financial metrics are unimportant. They're critically important. But they shouldn't be the only metrics that organizations actually use. And fortunately, more and more publicly traded companies now are using metrics beyond financial metrics. They use customer satisfaction metrics. They use metrics around how to become more process efficient. And they use metrics that focus on people, learning, growth development, capability development. So when you add those additional metrics in, you wind up having much more of a balanced picture of success. And in that kind of environment, ethical business practices can thrive. It seems like to me as well, the reward systems, there have to be people who are monitoring them and you have to have almost as close to the action as possible, people who will not sacrifice even a longer term gain, including a promotion. Yeah, absolutely correct. As I said a minute ago, the best incentive systems really do incentivize the behavior that your senior leadership needs in order for the organization to be able to grow. I went to work for a company that was known for intended internal competition. A particular business opportunity was given to several different business units. Mm. And the best, most innovative solution was the one that ultimately went forward. That created an environment where business unit heads quite intentionally did whatever they could to make sure that they had the successful outcome. Um, and then uh, we had new leadership of the company, and we ultimately decided that it would be better for us in the long term to cooperate and collaborate rather than compete internally. The incentive system was changed to reward collaboration and cooperation. Great and example. Ethical behavior flourished at that point. Thank you. Uh, we have a question that came in from Will3PO on Twitter, and I, I'd like to direct it to you, Dr. Euclea. Uh, it, the, the, it says, Harvard Report, children think parents value achievements over moral concepts like kindness. This kind of goes with what we had talked about earlier, which is why I'm looking down to you to kind of be the first one to address this. Uh, what do you think of this? What does this Harvard Report say to you, and what are the implications for ethics and business? That says a lot to me, and here's why. Uh, it was just about a year ago that Harvard had the big scandal of 125 students cheating <laughs> on an ex- final exam, and it was huge. It hit the, the network, and they're so uh, geared 
to succeed, that failure is not an option, and they would go to any length to do that. This is why I think ethics needs to be a major component in our educational systems. We teach uh, ethics in the university system. A lot of schools are beginning to do this now. We do this at the ethics center that we're involved in, uh, the good doctor here of engineering, and uh, because you cannot assume there's the pre-conventional, they learn certain things, but they, until the, the post-conventional is when they get into college and beyond is when they begin to really learn some things about what's right and what's wrong. Mm. It needs to be taught in the home as well. But there's a thing called self-differentiation. When you get people together, students together, they create these emotional force fields, and it's amazing how much pressure that puts on you to do the wrong thing. In organizations as well. Uh, so you need to know where you end and others begin. We need to teach that. We need to teach ethics and the institution. We don't just. There was one course at the University of Michigan on ethics, on business ethics, that said we assume that the students know these things already. So we're not talking about the morality of right and wrong. Uh-huh. That is so incorrect. Uh, they need to be taught this, and that Harvard example is a is a great example of that. Starts in the home, but then it needs to continue when they get in with their peers at the university level. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Groshani, you raised your hand. Would you like to add something to what Dr. Ukleo was saying? Yes, yes. It's, uh, it is so important uh, for all this to hang together to create that culture of ethics that Dr. Ukleo mentioned. And uh, he referenced a center on our campus. It's the Ukleo Center for Ethical Management. And what it does is it provides grants to our professors to incorporate principles of ethics, whatever is relevant to a topic that is being taught into the syllabus of the course. And this is a very powerful way of approaching this. Um, Obviously for our accreditation and uh, for a variety of reasons because the employers ask us, we need to incorporate uh, ethical, legal, societal issues uh, into what we teach. Now that can be either a course on its own and in the past it has become a almost a preaching course. Uh, oh, we got to do that and students go and uh, just endure the course if you want. Or this, uh, this center uh, enable us, enables us to ensure that whatever topic that is taught and for engineering a lot of uh, important uh, issues need to uh, be taken into account besides a good design and good implementation. Uh, it ensures that we teach those aspects along uh, with the technical topics. So uh, uh, education is important and uh, re- reviewing all these principles as often as, as possible just right. adds up to creation of that culture of uh, ethics in, in organizations later on. Thank you. I'd like to build on that. And Dr. O'Connor, you have a lot of experience with employers looking at candidates and trying to help them to truly be ethical in their hiring decisions and being fair, right? Uh, so, so I want to start by asking you this question. Is it your experience that unethical behavior is more prevalent in larger organizations or in smaller organizations or is there any data that suggests neither of that's true, it's something else? I think it's in all organizations whether it's ten people or a thousand people. I think when my experience is where I used to interview a lot of people and be on panels and I'm a well-seasoned individual you know, years ago it was 
if you were a person of color, gay or lesbian, there was prejudice and people would openly talk about it. Today, that would never take place in a corporation or a company or a university because you'd be sued as incredibly inappropriate. So I, I think we have made a tremendous amount of progress just overall as far as interviewing people and accepting people and bringing them into the fold for the, the, the corporations. But I think what I would like to point out with CEOs is such an important thing public relations and images and today all you have to do is have one employee take their cell phone and photograph or you know film something and you're in people magazine okay so i right. think it's really wise for any ceos or business people listening that you want to have great public relations you want to be whatever you say i always you know if it's written or in an email, somebody's going to see it. So I think it's important that people really are aware of morals, values, and whether they do or don't want to be ethical, they have to be in today's market, I think. I'd like to follow up with that because I think of some recent examples of companies that took public stances against positions that are currently being discussed in our society here in the U.S., uh, gay rights mm -hmm. and others. They took a public stance because the owners or founders or executives believed it was the ethical thing to do. However, on both sides, they were either applauded for their position or vilified for their position because it's, it's, it, it didn't seem to fit with the common consensus of what people should be saying or it didn't have a place in business. From your perspective, where do you come down on that type of a... How would you advise a CEO who has a very strong belief that may be counter to what the, some members of the press and the media and even our customers might feel? Great question. Um, I think the, the bottom line is that people need to be accepting of other individuals, okay? And you have to identify where there is prejudice, okay? And you have to identify what you perceive as right and wrong, okay? Not into a political sense, but I've had the pleasure of the last year or so speaking in several different countries. I was in Saudi Arabia speaking at an event. The, the women were at a different university, and um, it was a, a foreign situation towards me. People were very supportive and everything but and uh, when I was back at one of the hotels there was a, a young lady there with her husband she could not have been there her husband wasn't there she was blind and she came up to me and she was from another country and she was talking about I was so impressed that you talked about rights for people with disabilities she goes as a female I'm very limited what I can do in my particular country and she was so impressed so I think in the US we have made tremendous progress in the area of disabilities and acceptance for ethical standards in the, the corporations, but we have a way to go. But as compared to many other cultural situations, we're making tremendous progress. But I think uh, CEOs have to be very aware of cultural diversity, different rights, and uh, be outspoken about it if need be. Thank you. you. You bring up a point that I'd like to bring to Dr. Golshani uh, with your engineering background. This idea of ethics in business and is there ROI. Uh, we're going to be doing a show later this year, a panel discussion about exporting for small and middle market companies as a growth opportunity. There's, a, there's an evolving belief system that if it's made in the U.S., and somehow it has better quality, or at least I can trust the quality implicit in that design more than other countries. So could you, from your perspective as a teaching engineering students I mean, and, and advising CEOs of middle market companies, maybe manufacturing companies, is that an example of how there is an ROI in ethics in business because the world views stuff that's made in this country with a little different view than maybe some other countries that are also very large manufacturing powerhouses? Uh, thank you, yes. There, there are, again, multiple examples that can be cited. 
that support what you just mentioned that there is ROI for uh, uh, for good ethics uh, beside quality beside uh, prominence in market and so on and and look at uh, Deer and Company uh, one of the best brands and they have been in business well definitely when I was a kid they, they were in business and there's I, I do not know when they started but they, it's a strong and you're no brand. spring chicken either are you <laughs> that's right okay. yes we get that set so uh, I'll show you how to file on him for age discrimination <laughs> <laughs> there you go I picture for the panel anyway <laughs> big money in that okay sorry yes. so again uh, this this is a good example of I mean uh, setting one uh, for, for a lawsuit by not being cognizant of everything uh, again that's uh, that's another uh, uh, positive point by adhering to ethical uh, behavior basically but there are many examples where uh, companies that uh, acted properly sustained and those who did not went by the wayside uh, Firestone uh, one example one mistake and they never recovered right. and that was a uh, mistake that was uh, that was terrible and it went on just because they ignored a, an issue that was important to the society so yes uh, uh, it can cost the business quite substantially and it can reward uh, the business by enabling to sustain imagine uh, would Boeing be able to sell any more planes uh, if uh, there was a shadow of a doubt that some things are not upheld in this company. So that's a great segue to a question that I want to ask Dr. Bressler, and then we're going to take our third and final break here on Critical Mass Coast Coast Radio Show. I mean, Final Friday's Live. Sorry. Dr. Bressler, off the script, General Motors. In the press a lot, problems with an ignition, questions about response to it. Certainly, I think there's an ethical question to be asked about the decision-making in that company. So, uh, t on the other side of Made in America being viewed as quality, here's a, a recognized brand, one of the largest auto manufacturers in the world, who's embroiled now. And what do you think, how do you think that happened? Did they have an ethics committee and this get by it? And what do you think the long-term implications to the GM brand might be from this one issue? Rick, that's a uh, multi-part question. Yes. <laughs> 20 points for each one. That's right. I'm, I'm going to try and dissect it a bit. First of all, in terms of what's happened in the past, uh, there's been a great deal written about the culture of General Motors. Sometimes large, highly complex organizations where there isn't a great deal of accountability across divisions can yield to some unfortunate behavior. If you're in a very competitive environment across divisions, you want your division to, act to ultimately be viewed as top performing. And sometimes, and it's been brought up earlier, that there are tremendous pressures placed upon you to not degrade the company's earnings per share and so it's very easy to do things to sweep problems under the rug to send them out to study committees to kick the can down the road multiple times over multiple years uh, and ultimately you wind up with problems that don't get addressed past a certain point um, and we've seen what happens we've seen the 
very significant egg on the face of General Motors as an institution. And we see a newly hired, relatively newly hired CEO who really seems to be committed to changing the culture of the organization. But she has a very difficult job. A CEO in a large, complex organization can only do so much. Um, it's going to take time. It's going to take a great deal of effort. And it may take significant forward changes in subordinate senior level leadership before General Motors can ultimately turn itself around and really make the kind of automobiles that the American population and the population beyond the United States deserve from General Motors. You opened the door to a fantastic question that we're going to ask after the break, and I'll tease the audience that's listening online. I have a question for each panelist, so you have three minutes to think about it. Would more women as CEOs of major companies and middle market companies help to improve the ethical standards of companies across the board? Think about that. We'll be back after these words from our sponsors on Critical Mass Final Fridays Live at Brandman University. There's something positive about the word up. When things are looking good, they're looking up. When someone's down, you cheer them up. So how do you move up? Well, when it comes to getting your bachelor's or master's degree, there's one university that stacks up, Brandman University. Brandman is ranked by U.S. News and World Report as one of the nation's top ten universities for online bachelor's programs. Brandman's online graduate programs in business and education also receive top honors. So look us up at brandman.edu. Brandman University. Move up. Smart Business Network is a business-to-business multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at www.sbnonline.com. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. If you are an Orange County CEO or business owner, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have had these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions through the power of peer learning. 
Groups are groups of peers who are running businesses just like you. CEO Peer Groups provides a great sounding board to test fresh ideas and new concepts, review your strategic plans and tactical goals, and present issues and opportunities for a critical discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, and improved business results. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn about our CEO Peer Groups. CEO Peer Groups is a registered trademark of Critical Mass for Business. Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show, Final Fridays live from Brandman University in front of a live audience with a lively panel. I'm your moderator and host, Rick Franzi. Before the break, I said I was going to ask each panelist to comment briefly on the question, do you think... There would be more ethics in business if we had more women, female CEOs and leaders of major companies and middle market firms. Dr. Euclea, I'm going to give you that first. I think diversity always helps in any situation. And uh, with having more women CEOs, and we do need more women CEOs, but there's a reason why that's not taking place. And it's because of the corporate ladder needs to be changed at the corporate lattice. There needs to be ways to get more women involved as CEOs because they're more than competent and capable. Uh, not to get into a physiological thing here, but uh, a woman's brain, left and right brain, has a 40% more connection than a man's left and right brain. They have the ability to sense things and be sensitive to things sometimes that, that I cannot. That's why we work well together because we need each other. Sometimes we need each other, but we need each other, and I think it would be helpful uh, probably would help to have more women in leadership roles. I asked that question because Mary Barra is seeming to do all the right things trying to dig GM out of it. And she's a 30-year GM employee. It's not like they had to bring somebody in from the outside. She's a product of that environment, but yet she seems to be very different than what we believe the culture to be that she grew up in. So that's why I'm asking mm-hmm. this question because it was brought up. Thanks all right, we'll come down to the table. Pleasure. Dr. O'Connor? Um, I had the pleasure years ago of meeting Indira Gandhi and interviewing her and asking her questions. And she was a brilliant leader, uh, very talented, who just happened to be female and was exceptional. And so I think not only do you have more women who need to be in CEO, I think just across the board more diversity overall. Thank you. Great. Dr. Goshani? Uh, thank you. Again, I want to go back to the notion of uh, diversity and how important it is uh, in business and particularly technology area, uh, which is all about innovation. And uh, uh, innovation goes back to the experiences that the individual has had. So the more uh, innovation we would like to have, the more diverse the team should be. So, uh, and of course, uh, women, uh, 50% of population in many cases are uh, not represented properly enough in, in teams that we have, in particular in decision making. And we have seen a lot of great things happen when uh, the uh, chance is given to everybody to participate. And when we see that in technology companies more and more, again, as was mentioned, they may or may not be at the very top, but certainly at the vice presidential level, we see uh, women uh, taking leadership role quite effectively. Notable in Boeing, many of the uh, airline uh, airliners uh, are led by women leaders, which is great. 
they, they, they bring some things that the business need to understand. Work-life balance, one of them. And I say this because I know of one of the local leaders, uh, Dr. Wanda Austin, uh, the CEO of Aerospace Corporation. Not only she does that for her uh, company, but uh, I've been invited to Aerospace Corporation to events more than any other company, and these have been to educate the leaders of thought on this very topic, the importance of work-life balance that enable more women to have uh, productive careers with everything that uh, life throws at them. So by all means, let's hope that uh, uh, the balance will shift and we will have more women in decision-making roles. And I thank you so far for your thoughtful answers. I'm not asking a politically correct question either. I'm, I'm asking it based on data and opinions. And so, last but not least, Dr. Bressler, what's your opinion if more women in leadership positions would lead to more ethics? Well, the underrepresentation of women at the highest levels of leadership in corporations has frankly been appalling. But there are some things that are beginning to change. One of them is the replacement of the glass ceiling with an understanding that it's really glass walls that lead to a glass ceiling. Um, as women who have been overrepresented in support functions, like communications, human resources, my own profession, uh, and begin to get opportunities in operations leadership where they take segments, pieces of the business, and kind of profit and loss responsibility. That's where we're going to get the growth in skill and perspective that ultimately will lead to a greater ascension of women into um, the highest levels of leadership in corporations. Thank you. Thank you all, gentlemen, for answering that question. It's a little awkward asking four men if more women should be leadership. We probably, lessons to self, should have women more on the panel, although over the course of all the final Fridays Live, women have been proudly represented as panelists, so we're very uh, equal opportunity panelist people here. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you to kind of summarize is there an ROI on ethics in business? Here's what I believe I've learned from you so far in this conversation. We have about 10 minutes left on the radio show. Ethics in business can lead to a more profitable organization because it's a better run company because you have higher trust. Dr. Ukele talked about that. There's clearly less potential for legal problems by running an ethical company. Should the behavior or the internal workings of your organization become public, you have nothing to fear uh, because you're doing it ethically as well as legally. That it actually enables better hiring because you have a larger population of candidates to draw from and you have greater diversity in your workforce which leads to innovation, collaboration, etc., which was another key point, greater collaboration, less internal competition that can lead to aberrant behaviors and maybe counterproductive behaviors, good for the individual, bad for the company. And when that comes out in the public, uh, there's nothing to fear. And then finally, uh, little or no jail time for the CEO or loss of business and business reputation. So that's what we've learned, I've learned from you, our panelists. Uh, hopefully our audience picked up that and more, but I'd like you each to take just a few minutes and summarize, in your opinion, is there an ROI for ethics in business? And I'm going to start with Dr. Bressler. 
Well, Rick, you, in the last minute or so, defined all the different parameters and dimensions underlying a true return on, on uh, investment here. Financial, cultural, uh, a company's reputation, the commitment to do the right thing and own up to mistakes that are made. Uh, that sends very strong and positive signals in publicly traded companies to, to the investment advisor community that they don't have to worry about whether issues are being swept under the rug. They know that if the company does make a mistake, that they'll own up to it, they'll be visible, and that will actually allow for better financial modeling and forecasting, which ultimately will... Um, lead to appropriately valued organizations. So my answer is clearly yes, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. We'll just work down the panel. Dr. Galsani, you're next. Um, clearly there is an ROI, and it is going to increase because of the generation or generations that are following us. Uh, the millennials and I have three of them at my home, uh, are far more in tune with these principles than we were. Uh, they are aware of uh, environmental impacts, societal impacts, uh, the hiring uh, and diversity issues. All of those are uh, far more transparent to them than they were as I was growing up. So I hope uh, panels like this will continue, events like this will continue to discuss these uh, important issues. And uh, I see it as my role as an educator to do what we can in order to make sure this, this stays a, a major core, cornerstone of uh, the education of this group. So again, thank you for including me in the panel. And thank you. Yeah, and I would agree with the other panelists. I think clearly if you have CEOs modeling appropriate behavior, creating diversity, bringing women in, bringing people of color, I think you're going to build up that trust. And as uh, my colleague mentioned, uh, this generation, the young people, they're so savvy. They have all the technology. They don't let anything pass by. So things that could have happened maybe 10 years, 15 years ago will never fly. So I think we're going to have some tremendous progress and ethics will fall into place. It's, it's, it's not as easy to document the financial advantage of moral intelligence, but the documentation of moral ignorance is beyond question. <laughs> uh, we've seen that over and over again. And even DuPaul did a study on the, they took the 100 uh, best citizen companies, best citizens, and then they compared that to the S&P, the rest of them that were on the S&P, and the mean average, and they were 10 points higher. Those corporate citizens mm. were 10 points higher than those other companies on the S&P. So, yes, we don't know how to exactly do it yet, uh, and I don't think we should be ethical because we want a better ROI, but it is, is, there's a residual effect. Right. There's a residual effect. You do things because it's the right thing to do, and the results hopefully will be a higher ROI. Well, 
You've all given such great perspective. I want to thank you on behalf of the uh, the audience that's listening online today, live on octalkradio.net. The audience that will be listening online, lot not live, but as a podcast from our iTunes, Stitcher, and Spreaker.com accounts. I'd also like to thank you for the people that will be watching this video on our Critical Mass Richard Franzi YouTube channel, which will have this full unedited version up on our YouTube channel. And I'll let the audience that's in the room thank you personally by giving you applause for what you've given us today in content. If you'd like... If you'd like to get more information and updates about Critical Mass radio show series and certainly our final Fridays Live, then text 37619. That's 37619. And type the word Fridays, all one word, F-R-I-D-A-Y-S, and you'll be in our marketing plan that will keep you newsletter updated about what's going on with Critical Mass, the radio show, the series here, and final Fridays Live. I'd like to thank our engineer for today, who also owns the station, Paul Roberts. I'd like to thank our floor producer, Asia Celestino, who brought this all together. Our producer in the studio is Crystal Nunley. Our guest coordinator is Kathleen Shepard. Social media manager is Melissa Padani. And our VP of Sales, as I said earlier in the show, is Rose Chamura. I'd like to thank all of our sponsors for supporting this program. And if you'd like to learn more about Critical Mass for Business, maybe refer a future guest or advertise, visit our website, criticalmassforbusiness.com. And until our next Next show, this is your host, Rick Franzi, saying I hope all of your decisions move your company in a positive, ethical direction. You've been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Final Fridays live from Brandman University. This show was live in front of an audience of CEOs and executives from the Southern California business community with your host, Richard Franzi. 